All right, welcome back to the Movie Babble Podcast. This week you've got Nick and myself, and uh, we're going to be talking about some movies. And uh, the I think the first time ever, maybe some TV. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump into it. So I think the biggest, at least the most well-known uh, streaming release this week was WandaVision. So this is the, well, I'd say this is probably the first MCU show there, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and some of the Netflix stuff, which has never really been acknowledged by the MCU, but I guess Kevin Feige once in a meeting said it was. Um, But now they're like fully going for it with WandaVision on Disney Plus. So it dropped uh, the first two episodes this past week. And then this series is basically the beginning of phase four is what it's been led to be. It it supposedly is going to tie into... Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness pretty heavily, and uh, presumably Spider-Man is also part of that kind of unofficial trilogy. Um, so the first two episodes did drop on Friday, and I think they were pretty solid. Um, they weren't what I was expecting going in, um, but I'm I'm glad they didn't go the direction I thought they would. And I'm glad they really stuck to the sitcom premise, and, and more than that, they really like specifically went after um, almost parodies of I Love Lucy for the first episode and Bewitched for the second episode. Um, And I think just the writing in terms of how can we like mold this show to fit the humor of the time was really, really strong. Um, And I, I really enjoyed that really corny part of it. Yeah, this it's, it was really interesting because I feel like over the past year or so since Endgame, we've been saying how, I mean, it's kind of a bummer that so many of these movies have been pushed back, but it it felt like it was kind of necessary to have this sort of refresher, you know, with not having to wait so long for the next MCU property to come out. And I feel like this was kind of a fun way to re-enter the MCU. And it was funny because for the longest time, I feel like we've had conversations off the pod where I've just been like, I just don't feel like watching a Marvel TV show. And then people started talking about it this week and I immediately cracked and watched it <laughs> then wanted to talk about it. Um, Cause I agree. I think this is a really interesting um, look back in the MCU and we'll talk later about how just it's, I don't even know what TV and film is anymore. Cause they're just going to keep blending these back and forth and you're going to have to watch the TV show to understand a different movie and, and all these certain things and all these crazy like things of lore they're going to build into all these movies and stuff now. But um I thought the the first two episodes were interesting. I think clearly um, we're dealing with some kind of simulation here, simulation theory um, with these two episodes because there's and at the end of both of these episodes, people are they pan back and they show people working on these uh, nefarious computer monitors. So clearly, Vision and Wanda are stuck in some kind of thing. Who knows? We'll find out, I guess, later on. But for what these two in, these two episodes are, I'm I'm pretty interested. Uh, I think I'm 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 wondering how long they keep up the the charade of this like 1950s world. I feel like if if I think this is what nine episodes, right? So if yeah. if it continues any longer, I wonder if I'll start to get a little a little tired because we already know that this is sort of like it's not real what we're watching. Um, but for now, I think it's really good. I think it's really really interesting, um, and we'll see how. It, can, it progresses from there. Yeah, and I really appreciate how reserved they were with those little end tags because for both of these episodes, you get like a normal 1950s sitcom episode. And then, you know, the first episode and the second episode, it's a very similar reveal. Um, the second one's just like a little bit different and there's a little bit more uh, like voice to it. Uh, but really, like, these are pretty independent running in their own little sitcom premise like they're very basic setups like oh wanda and vision get dinner with their boss and they forget about it um or wanda and vision put on a magic so magic show for the town um and they just like really revel in that and just kind of how wacky and goofy it is like the the plot of the second one involves vision who you've seen like fly through walls and like pick up mjolnir uh get drunk because there's gum in his shoes <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they're just like they're just enjoying themselves which i really like and they're not trying to you know like rush all this um you know crazy like oh look we've got scrolls or another infinity stone or whatever like they're really just sitting in the the setup of the show basically 
I want to keep repeating from now on um, the what uh, Paul Bettany says during the uh, the magic show where he just keeps yelling flourish <laughs> at the crowd when he does something. It's like flourish. And he's like stumbling around all drunk. <laughs> and Wanda's like, no, you don't say that. You just do it. Uh, it's really funny. It's really, really good um, comedy from Paul Bettany, which is something we really haven't seen from him because he's a he's a humanoid computer as vision. But um it's interesting that they're leading with this show and for the MCU because I don't know how you feel, but I feel like through all the MCU movies, I feel like the least attached to probably not maybe not one one division, but they're on the lower level of characters that I really care about. Um, so on one hand, it's like a little it's a little ballsy to like lead with this, but also it's I think it's a smart move if they want to continue with building the MCU because we don't have. Iron Man, we don't have Cap. Um, Black Panther will be something entirely different now. Um, so I think it's smart for them to kind of grow the characters that we have some familiarity with and just focus on them for a while. And I think even in these first two episodes, especially with Paul Bettany, like you see different sides to Vision that we've never seen before in what, 23, 24 movies already? <laughs> um, so I think it's it's pretty, in terms of keeping this train rolling along this big MCU train that will go on for until the end of time, far beyond when we're dead, <laughs> you know, um, I think it's really smart to keep uh, building with their characters um, so that we remain interested in all this stuff. But um, I think I'm still waiting a little bit for more Elizabeth Olsen. She's another character. Where I, don't, I still don't really understand Scarlet, Scarlet Witch very much. She can just do really super powerful things, but I don't really know what the, how you define what she does, but um, I do love a lot of what they're doing here. It's it feels like they have a really cohesive vision for what they want this show to be. And but I really love the the old style aspect ratio to kind of match what like an old TV looks like. Um, like you said, just it's a lot of goofiness. They're just kind of it's a lot of Wanda and Vision hanging out and spoofing off of 1950s TV, which I just think is really interesting. So um, I'm here for it. I think it's just really wacky. It's really wacky and really bizarre. And if we're going to keep going deeper into a lot of like these multiverses in the MCU um, moving forward, then why not? I'm here for all this weirdness. Yeah, it really reminds me of uh, either Scooby-Doo in the Cyber Chase or the old uh, Fairly Odd Parents what? special channel what chasers. A <laughs> that was the first two things you think of when you're watching this. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, cause those, those are the, uh, like this premise <laughs> that I grew up with as a kid. Um, but yeah, it's just like really enjoying making fun of other people's TV shows while at the same time making their own ridiculous TV show. Um, and it's nice to see Paul Bettany kind of get the limelight for once. Cause I mean, he's been around since 2008, like in one way or another, just hanging in, in the MCU. And I mean, he had to a pretty big point in infinity war and then was gone from Endgame. So it's nice to see him just like kind of be there and get to just let the actor have fun as well as exploring the character. Um, and then, yeah, I agree with what you say with Wanda. She's always just been like, yeah, she can do like hand stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, she's maybe doing not a lot hand of wavy stuff. hand things. It's just, <laughs> I know we're on video no one can see what I'm doing, but she's just like waving her hands all around and like, red stuff comes out and moves things. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's like, it's been interesting with her character because a lot of, I think a lot of the reason why they haven't really gone too in depth into her powers is because most of her powers are like related to being an X-Man and being mutants mm -hmm. and all that. And until recently, Marvel hasn't been allowed to say either of those words. And so it'll, it'll be interesting to see if they like bring any of that into the fold a little bit later on. Cause I think like even in, what movie uh, age of Ultron was like her first big movie that wasn't a post-credit scene. And there's like some throwaway line that, uh, Kobe smolders tells iron man where she's like, yeah, he's fast and she's weird. And that's like, that's the explanation of her powers. So I, th I think it'll be interesting to see her like actually hopefully have some kind of definition to everything she can do. Um, which, you know, that may not happen in the crazy sitcom world where gum can stop the Scrum's <laughs> Adventure, but... Um, Who, is, is, his, is that his new kryptonite? We have just, Vision's kryptonite is gum. It's just... A, dude, he's going to struggle in New York City when he comes out of the subway. 
Buddy the Elf's just going to run circles around him. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Uh, uh, another, another part of this I really liked, too, was Catherine Hahn, who I adore just about everything that she's in. I love when she gets a role, and she's even dabbled in a few more dramatic roles of late. She was in that movie, Private Life. It was a Netflix movie that came out a year or two ago, and I thought she was terrific in that. Um, but she's just great in everything. I really love her, and I suspect that she has a bigger role later on in this show. I feel like the the unwritten rule of Marvel is when a known actor inexplicably has a supporting role in a Marvel property that they become the villain later on. So I imagine she'll probably be part of the nefarious plot of this bigger simulation theory thing that we're working with here. And she's working with that. But uh, for now she's hilarious. She, I think she has some of the better kind of poking fun at the 1950s humor where she's like getting blasted, uh, just <laughs> drinking a bunch to get through the, uh, <laughs> to get through the fundraiser or the magic show. And she's really good in that. And um, like staring at the mailman's ass as he's walking by and, but doing it in like a really fun kind of innocent 1950s way. She's just, I love her and so much. She's just, She's probably like the best part of this for me, except for Paul Bettany chewing gum. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other interesting thing is like, we haven't really seen a lot of the main cast yet. So you have like Randall Park, who I just is hilarious and everything kind of in that same note. Um, and then like some of the side characters, like um, uh, the, the girl sidekick from Thor, like Natalie Portman's sidekick from those movies is supposed to be in the show. And, the adult version of the kid from Captain Marvel. So it's like, we haven't even really seen a lot of what they have to offer yet, which I think is interesting. Um, and it's kind of got me hooked going forward. And I would imagine that's probably going to be a lot of what sets up later movies down the line and where that, that big MCU connect comes in. Yeah, it is interesting. Cause I read a report where it was like this, this show cost over $200 million and you watch these first two episodes and you think, like, where did all this money go? Because it really is. It's very much, as we mentioned, a spoof of 1950s TV. And, like, the most effects-driven stuff is a plate floating and when um, <laughs> when Wanda is trying to cook. And that's really about it. And then uh, well, at the end of the second episode, we see things turn into color. So I guess we're – it looks like we're time-jumping into another era of – spoofing tv it looks like it's like the 60s or 70s or whatever they're going they're jumping to next but um i'm fascinated to see what they do because i feel like we're really getting set up for some big kind of just cgi maybe not a cgi overload but some just crazy spectacle later on and um i don't think we've really seen anything like that in tv as of yet it's really interesting to see how the mcu is playing with this yeah and i think it's interesting because this kind of puts us back into the round the clock Marvel content cycle. So we, you know, we, we haven't had like substantial new Marvel stuff since Spider-Man far from home. And that was 18 months ago. Uh, but you've got like black widow and the Eternals coming out later this year. But then on top of that, um, basically as soon as each, um, Disney plus show ends another one begins. So the end of WandaVision takes us right to the start of the Falcon and the winter soldier. And then when that ends, Loki comes in and then they have what if, and I believe Miss Marvel's also scheduled for later this year and um, Hawkeye and um, yeah, Hawkeye's also supposed to be like towards the end of the year. Um, so I think this is not just like a, a testing ground for the MCU, but also Disney plus, which hasn't um, I think, probably both agree that their biggest weakness is they're not just dropping like new content every week, like Netflix is. Um, but this is where they're really like shifting into gear and getting into that. So it's not just, Hey, I sign up for Disney plus every November so I can watch the Mandalorian. It's now they've got actual substantial stuff. That's not Artemis Fowl dropping pretty much every week. <laughs> uh, Artemis Fowl. Uh, what a time. Yeah, it is interesting. I think they're and they're so smart to just release the first two episodes. And I imagine they'll probably go to one episode a week from now on. Or who knows? I mean, one of the things I was surprised to see was that both episodes were half an hour long. I thought we we got on here before and I was like, oh, I had to I was thinking about I had to, I had to sink like two hours into watching both these episodes. But they're they're really short. And the first episode is 
22 minutes long with eight minutes of credits. And then the second episode is like 30 minutes long with also eight minutes of credits. So it is interesting in the broader context. This is what nine episodes. So you got to think if they're all kind of around this length, we're looking at this being the length of one Irishman probably. (laughs) Um, So it's, it is really interesting because even though they're blending with film and TV, like the runtime of this will basically be Endgame or the Irishman or something like that. It's, I we're gonna get to the point with the MCU down the line where we can't really call it TV and films. We're just gonna have to default to content, which makes my skin crawl because we already call too many things content because we don't have a better word for it. But it's just gonna be like this multimedia kind of what we said, multimedia just elongated story that never ends and it'll jump back and forth and then we'll go from there i think it's fascinating it's just going to further blend the blur the lines of what we think of as film and tv it's just a shame we never got to see any of these on quibi <laughs> we get to watch quibi now did you see that roku bought all their stuff so we get to watch all our quibis again <laughs> the day is saved um but yeah i i think it was it's a very like it's a very fun two episodes and i think it, if that gives us just kind of a picture of what some of the coming mcu features could be like it gets me excited to see weird stuff i mean with titles like multiverse of madness and love and thunder i really don't see how you can go wrong but you know yeah they're just getting the mcu's getting weirder and weirder which if we're going to keep getting bombarded with superhero content then that's what i want i want to see crazy shit all over the screen i want as many multiverses as possible i want um yeah more weird taika stuff out with thor um i i love this if they're just going to keep getting weirder and weirder that's that's all i need (laughs) that'll keep me interested what i'm really here for is michael keaton being a mainstay in all three of the big superhero universes right now so you've got like his mcu stuff his sony stuff and then they announced last week that he's like the official batman again um which is just really weird to think about but basically like the torch is being passed back to him and he's going to be like the Iron Man of the DCEU now, uh, which yeah, I, I'm down to see 70 year old Michael Keaton put on the bath suit where he has to like turn his head by doing this, which you can't <laughs> see if you're listening to the podcast. But... <laughs> it all comes back to Keaton and that's something I'm entirely OK with because Keaton is the best. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, that that is one division. Um, so yeah, it, it has nine episodes, so it's seven more weeks, and then I think there's a week break in between that and Falcon and Winter Soldier. But we are, we are, in the constant Marvel continuum once more. Even when they disappear, they never truly disappear. They're back and they're ready to just rule. Probably the rest of this year, honestly. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there. I feel like. This year is going to have some of their lower like movie offerings. Like I, I, I know people are going to see Black Widow, but I don't really know anybody who's like, yes, this is my most anticipated Marvel movie. Please delay Doctor Strange by another year. I want to watch this. <laughs> yeah, I don't really care about Black Widow, if I'm being honest. I am excited for the Eternals just because of Chloe Zhao, who goes from. I feel like I've said this on 10 podcasts now, but she goes from the writer in Nomadland to Eternals, which just is hilarious and kind of is like a good good encapsulation of what the film industry right is right now where you make your your super impassioned indie movies then you go off and make a marvel movie and get paid so yeah i'm excited <laughs> that's the one see. i'm looking forward to everybody doing that because like uh kumail nanjiani like got ripped for that movie and he's just funny and everything um like if you <laughs> um if you haven't seen i i, I almost said stuber because i was like the more recent <laughs> release that came to mind. Remember, um, Stuber? <laughs> I try not to. Uh, <laughs> but he's like, he's one of the leads in that. Brian Tyree Henry's in that movie, uh, which he's just like consistently in everything these days, which I'm completely here for. Um, so it's definitely like we know nothing about it, but I'm excited to see it no matter what. Uh, that's pretty much what's going on in the MCU. Um, so we're going to switch gears briefly and not talk about netflix um so I, i'm just gonna run through the top 10 real quick uh there wasn't really anything groundbreaking going on it is nice to see illumination movies cracking the top 10 once more is it uh, 
Is it though? I mean, it, it just feels wrong when they're not there. It's like <laughs> something's missing and I'm just glad to see it back. Um, so for the Netflix top 10 this week, uh, the number one spot was outside the wire. Number two, we can be heroes. Number three, good burger. Number four, pink fong and baby shark space adventure. Number five, crack. Number six, charming. <laughs> Number seven, <laughs> The Secret Life of Pets 2. Number eight, 17 again. Number nine, Shark Boy and Lava Girl. And number 10, Super Bad. Uh, so the top t- 10 list really isn't too different from last week. Uh, most of these movies were on it in some place or another um, the week before, uh, with like Shark Boy and Lava Girl being a new addition. I don't think it was on last week. And then uh, seeing Illumination up there with Secret Life of Pets 2. But nothing too crazy. Yeah, I can't say I'll be watching Crack anytime soon or uh, Pink Fong and Baby Shark Space Adventure. So um, sorry, Netflix, you're not getting my subscriber money this week. Yeah, uh, Jeff Bezos got my my money this week (laughs) and last week because I had to rent some Muppet movies from him. So Jeff, Jeff has been my 2021 streamer uh, (laughs) most recently, (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think the big movie uh, for both of us and pretty much for the industry in general was One Night in Miami, which is Regina King's directorial debut. Um, and she's had just a really strong year last year coming off of Watchmen and, and now going into this. And there's that one uh, luxury car commercial. I can't remember what brand it is, but she's just like in it and directing it while being in it, um, which I guess is cool. Uh, <laughs> but now she's got One Night in Miami. Um, so this is a it's based on a play and it takes place on one night in the city of Miami in uh, 1964. And it is a fictional telling of a real um, evening between Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, uh, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke. And uh, this movie was really good, in my opinion. Um, so I've only seen one new movie this year and it's been this movie. So, you know, I can't really compare it to anything. But it's been my favorite uh, 2020, 2021 movie so far. Uh, we, we were talking a little bit earlier. I guess it's technically a 2020 movie because it had a theatrical release um, at the end of 2020. But that disagrees with my point of view. So it's a 2021 movie to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's fake news to you. It um, is, uh, stop, stop the steal. <laughs> Yeah, I really love this movie quite a bit. I saw this movie back at a film festival in November, and it's been something that I've, it's been a movie that I've thought of quite a bit off and on, because it's one of the few movies about um, black characters that kind of just gets to be low stakes, and that doesn't mean, because they're this play is basically just a really long conversation about um, these four these four guys talking about some of the most important things that I think have just been unbelievably relevant over the past year. Um, so in that sense, it's it means quite a bit. But there's nothing. There's no big overarching plot here. There's no crazy contrivances or like any death in this movie. It's really just. The first act is how can we get all four of these people into a, a hotel room and let them have a conversation for the rest of the movie. Um, and I thought the I don't know about you, but I thought the conversations that these guys have I thought was absolutely riveting um, and surprisingly very very in depth. Like they go from into everything from colorism to just the economics of how should how should um, black people just raise each other up and if they should play within the system or create their own system. And there's a lot of great back and forths between um, Leslie Odom Jr., Sam Cooke, and Kingsley Benadier's Malcolm X in that respect. But um, hats off to Regina King. Even I think this is basically a play as a movie, uh, but I think she still gets some really good, nice flourishes in as a director. And I think this is just a really assured directorial debut. Um, Definitely an Oscar contender, and we can talk about that later. But um, yeah, I thought this movie was really, really terrific. Yeah, and I think for me, the the big comparison that I'm going to draw is to a movie that's kind of a similar, um, just a similar process and that it's an adaptation of a play that takes place primarily in one room. Um, and that is with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which came out um, just a little bit over a month ago on Netflix. Um, and I think 
you see two very different directorial styles to it. Um, so what I really, really loved about the just the camera work and the set work and just the way the film was shot in general is Regina King like shoots the hell out of this room, um, which I don't think is something that we saw with Ma Rainey, where it very much felt like all these characters are kind of stuck in this linear plane. Whereas with One Night in Miami, it's this very dynamic setting. Um, and there's just a lot of movement of the characters within the room and just exploring the space of the hotel in general. Um, you know, I will add that, that in One Night in Miami, they do leave the hotel um, for quite a few instances. You, they don't actually get to the hotel till about you know, 15 or 20 minutes into the movie. Um, so it does just have that added benefit of having some context for these characters outside of the one location which you didn't really get with Ma Rainey. But even once they're there, um, you know, there's, there's a, a scene where they're all on the rooftop and, you know, it's it's basically a flat gray floor and then the skyline. Um, and even that feels really dynamic in a way that I don't think Ma Rainey ever really got to. Um, so I think I think it, it really shows off Regina King's directorial prowess and the way that she is creatively and distinctly shooting these different locations within a singular large location which I really enjoyed and it helps um, at least for me pull you out of the thought of, Oh, I'm watching a play because I, I think the challenge when you're adapting a play like this is a lot of the things that are great about the play might not be great about the movie. Uh, but at the same time you can watch a movie and go, well, you know, the, the things that are great about this are just kind of lifted from the play. Like as a movie, this doesn't really bring anything to the table. It's just putting a camera in front of, something that somebody else already did. Um, and I, I don't think One Night in Miami really falls into that pit at all. Um, I think it really elevates the work and especially these long speeches that you have, particularly with Malcolm X, uh, but this this argument that takes up, you know, the the back half of the movie between him and Sam Cooke and um, just a lot of the, the character work you have with uh, Muhammad Ali throughout the night um, and also with... Uh, Jim Brown, who uh, I I think he's kind of the only minor note or the only uh, like critique, negative critique I have towards the movie. And, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I, I thought this was phenomenal. Oh, that's interesting. I really loved Al, Al, Al just Hodge in that. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say there. But, yeah, just to kind of piggyback off of um, kind of what you're saying there, it's the first act of this movie I thought was just it kind of shows what Regina King will do. I hope she makes another movie after this. I, I want to see anything she makes after this. One and after done. This, if I'm being honest. Yeah, no, she's done. That's She's done with movies. <laughs> we'll never see her again. Because um, the, the first, the first act of this movie is um, you could, you could argue that it's a little redundant in terms of kind of um, the, when they first meet in the hotel rooms, they kind of like rehashes a lot of what already went down, what you already saw to begin with. So that's certainly a thing that some we, I might critique, but the filmmaking itself is great. Like you have um, Eli Gorey um, as Cassius Clay, who's um, fighting Sony Liston and he becomes heavyweight champion of the world. And that fight scene is great. It's really good character building. Um, it's also just really cool to watch. It's really good boxing. Um, Aldous Hodge uh, as Jim Brown has a really good scene where he goes and meets um, a guy at his house on a plantation, which um, there's a there's a bit of racism in that in that scene that really stung. It just caught me really off guard. Um, I just think a lot of those scenes are just really well uh, staged. And yeah, like you said, there's a couple of really nice flourishes that she has just with camera placement in the room. I always forget that there's like certain like little nooks and crannies to the room. Cause she keeps extending out and it's like, Oh yeah, there's an entirely different view of this same room that we've been in for 20 minutes. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> um, I would say that, yeah, between, um, one night in Miami and Ma Rainey, I prefer one night in Miami. I think they're both really good, but yeah, like there's just a little bit extra with this movie. Um, that Regina King is mostly the reason for. Um, but they really do follow the same plots in a lot of ways where um, a lot of it is critiquing the system that's in place and how it takes advantage of uh, black people and what people can do to navigate within that system. And then both end very similarly. I think the, the, and with Ma Rainey, it's much more on a downbeat 
where it's just it's more of a cynical look at what's going on and this one it feels is a little more hopeful but they really do follow kind of a similar structure in that sense without giving too much away but um i will say that i thought the ending of this movie i thought was perfect it's one of my favorite endings of the year right up there with uh the insane the insanity that is the end of another round with Mads Mikkelsen drunkenly dancing is just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's just so much to love about this movie. Um, I hope people got a chance to check it out rather than watching um, Baby Shark's Space Adventure this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just kind of touching on that scene um, with Jim Brown and with... Uh, Bo Bridges uh, plays the the plantation That's right. owner. Yeah, Bo Bridges. Um, I I really like that scene because it it draws you in. Um, and I was a little bit confused watching that scene because it's like I'm starting to get like very strong white savior vibes. And I'm like, I know this was directed by Regina King. Like this isn't this isn't computing. What's going on? And then yeah, he just kind of drops that comment, uh, which I will not be saying. And uh, it just kind of shatters you out of it. You're like, oh damn. Uh, but it really puts a lot of the movie going forward into perspective um, as you're meeting all these characters. Um, but then, so so my really my only complaint with with Jim Brown's character is that he's used very heavily in the beginning, and especially in the first act. And then I feel like he kind of uh, peters out in in terms of like how much he's actually driving things forward. Um, in the second and especially in the third act whereas like sam cook is kind of the opposite um kind of getting more and more important as the story goes on um and then yeah muhammad ali is like always if not at the forefront he's always like interacting with the main action in the in the film uh which is mostly between malcolm and, and sam cook um but yeah that, that was really my only complaint um was that it just felt like jim brown serves his purpose and then kind of stands back and watches everybody else argue. And he'll, he'll, he has a, um, a bit of a dialogue, um, later on with Muhammad Ali, uh, or with Sam Cook. I can't remember. There's lots of dialogues. It's easy to get the next step. <laughs> There's a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has a dialogue like later on, uh, almost towards the end of the third act where he kind of like comes back to that really important level. But I just feel like he wasn't consistently used, um, with the same level of importance. Yeah. It's, it's a tough role to pull off because you have Malcolm X, which is, who's kind of one of the more like energetic, like people you'll ever hear in history. Like he's just all over the place, very outspoken. Obviously you have Sam cook, who's also like a bit of a firecracker and you have Muhammad Ali, who's Muhammad Ali also like one of the most outspoken and energetic figures in history. So you kind of, with uh, Aldous Hodges, um, Jim Brown, it's kind of tough because on one hand, he's kind of like when he doesn't really say much for a while, it's a little more noticeable because the other characters are just so outspoken. Um, but I think it works really well because um, Jim Brown in real life, he's very he's a very measured guy and re- is really thoughtful about, about uh, what he says. And... Just with, uh, I think Aldous Hodge is one of the better presences we have in movies right now. Um, even when he shows up in The Invisible Man, he's just really good for like five minutes. Um, he was in this amazing movie uh, in 2019 called Clemency that not enough people saw. Um, but he's just a very imposing big guy. And I think as an actor, he, especially in this movie, he is very content with um, sitting back and letting his presence kind of do a lot of the work. Cause you get a sense that he's not the first one to speak in this group, but when he does speak, everyone pays attention to him. Um, and especially there's that, the one uh, speech he has with um, Malcolm X. That's the, the colorism discussion. I think it's like it kind of, he hits uh, Malcolm X with kind of with a sledgehammer. Cause he's just, very measured and very thoughtful about what he's saying. And it kind of just takes Malcolm X aback after having this large shouting match with, um, Leslie Jr. Sam cook. So I think he works really well, but we could differ on that. But, um, yeah, I think this movie is terrific. It was really nice to see Michael Imperioli for a second. As I make my way through the Sopranos, he's really fun as, um, Muhammad Ali's trainer. But, um, yeah, I suspect this movie is going to, at least be nominated for a ton of Oscars. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. 
Um, and just touching on uh, Muhammad Ali, I loved uh, Eli Gurry's charisma, just as Muhammad Ali, like when he's when he's trash talking the opponents in the ring or like when he's outside talking with the reporters, just like every time he says he says something like just cocky. I was like, hell, yeah, the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> um, it works really well because he's he's kind of one of the few he's like the one who might be a little caricature. E, but um, the dialogue he uses is so like good that it works really it works particularly well yeah yeah his like i just i was excited every time he talked like he just had a lot of charisma (laughs) (laughs) i got no notes (laughs) um (laughs) exuding from the role um and then yeah i think like uh just seeing leslie odom jr as sam cook was really interesting um uh and just like especially because he does have you know, he starts off as kind of a smaller part of the movie during the first act. He's not doing a whole lot um, before they get to the hotel. Um, but then, yeah, just the crux of the movie lies between this big shouting match and fight that he has with uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, and it's nice to see him uh, outside of Aaron Burr because um, I quite frankly just haven't seen a lot of Leslie Odom Jr. things that aren't Hamilton. Yeah, he is really good. He was in that. Oh, he was in the. Uh... The Kenneth Branagh murder on the Orient Express. And I thought he was pretty good in that. He's been in a few things. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I've liked him in basically everything non Hamilton that I've seen him in. Bold of you um, to assume I remember that murder on the Orient <laughs> Express. <laughs> I'm surprised I remembered that. I'm really impressed with myself. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of uh, Oscars, I think this movie will probably get um, a Best Picture nomination. Um, I suspect Regina King will be will be passed over for best director, and that's not a comment on her work because I think she does an amazing job. But I think there will be a, there will, there's going to be like a more showy uh, directing job that I think gets vaulted over her because I think a lot of the stuff that she's doing is a little more subtle and um, might may not play very well to the Academy. But um, maybe something like Judas and the Black Messiah or these other big movies that still haven't come out yet, but. We'll see there. Um, I think in terms of acting, it seems like the two big, um, the two big ones are um, Kensley Benadir as uh, Malcolm X. He looks like he's running in Best Actor. Um, so I think Best Actor seems like it's going to be a, a really big race this year. So it seems like that might be a little tough whether or not he gets a nomination or not. But um, I think Sam Cooke is definitely going to get his, a Best Supporting. Uh, nomination it seems like he is the favorite at this point i can't really think of anything else that would beat him at right now but it seems like out of of all this he might be the biggest lock in terms of this movie's awards chances yeah i i certainly think we'll see i I don't think we're going to see the last of it um uh, as far as awards go and as far as like this movie being in the conversation um, which again, comparing it to Ma Rainey, I, I don't think that movie is still in the conversation uh, for a lot of things outside of Chadwick Boseman. Um, but I think this movie is going to dominate the conversation for quite a while. You don't think Ma Rainey is going to get it like a Best Picture nom or anything like that? Um, I don't know, especially because the Academy uh, normally isn't kind to similar non-white movies. Um, in terms mm, of like including multiples, that's fair. Of them. You're not wrong, yeah. Um, so especially with Judas and the Black Messiah coming forward here in the next um, three three weeks, um, like right at the end of that window, um, I I see if if I see one of these three um, like very strong black led movies on the cutting room floor of the Oscars, it's going to be Ma Rainey. Yeah. It's, and it's a shame that we still have to deal with that with the Academy too, but I can totally see it as well where it's just like some curmudgeon 85 year old, like white dude who produced movies back in the eighties just gets confused about which is which between Ma Rainey and one, one night in Miami. I could totally see that even if it's a little cynical of a view by me, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think the power of Chadwick may vault that movie too at least some kind of consideration other than best actor, but maybe that's just me being hopeful. That'll teach you to hope. <laughs> Let's replay this bot in a few months to see the, the joy fall from my, from my voice. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I definitely think this will be something I'll revisit 
um, later on down the line. Um, it's just it's a very strong debut. Um, but I don't know what what more needs to be said. Yeah, it's terrific. People should go. People should go watch it out. Um, go check it out. And it's certainly uh, better than the next movie I wanted to talk about, which was Locked Down, which was a movie that premiered on HBO Max this week. Um, and it's and it's a COVID movie. It's I'm sure it's not the first we've had. We've got a ton of COVID movies so far, like Host and a billion of other others already. But um, Netflix's homemade series, which is a bunch of shorts that people made in lockdown, but it seems like this is one of the first like like very prominent COVID releases because this is directed by Doug Lyman and stars Anne Hathaway and she would tell it edge uh, and it's a rom-com heist movie. It's like a very genre. Um, and it's also not very good. It's very half baked uh, as I imagine that all of these movies that are getting pushed into production during COVID will be because they've been, They've they've been in like pre-production for a week before someone okay's the script and they start shooting <laughs> and they realize wait this was a bad idea but they're already too far into it. Uh, Lockdown is very very fine as a movie. It's it deals with Anne Hathaway is the CEO and she has a troubled relationship with Chiwetel Ejiofor who's lost his job. He's furloughed and he's kind of just like struggling and not knowing what to do with himself. And they've broken up but they're still living in the same house together. And they're just very frustrated. And the first 75 minutes of this movie is them just kind of arguing and going outside where without anyone around them and just being generally frustrated. And then the last 30 ish minutes of this movie is a heist in a mall, which is when they steal this like very precious diamond. I think it's Harrods and the big Harrods in London or Paris or wherever they are. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the movie, and it's two hours long. So you kind of you're watching it this entire time, thinking, "How on earth are they stretching this out to two hours?" And when the credits come over, you don't really have a good answer for that. It's a lot of filler uh, for all that doesn't really happen in this movie. So um, certainly not the worst that Anne Hathaway has done recently. We've talked recently about how she's been on a very much a cold spell, and she's pretty good in this movie. She has a bunch of different monologues that um that she gets to perform where she seems like she's really going for it uh, it seems like both her and chilatology for um were just aching to act for the really for the longest time so this movie kind of it kind of doubles as a play in a lot of ways where they get to just go back and forth for 10 15 minutes and just have and just really get to act and chew into the scenes that they're performing in but yeah it, this this feels like I'm not ready for all of these genre e movies to come out with people like looking like, Oh, I'm going to put my mask on and someone <laughs> walks by and they have too much toilet paper in their hands and they get yelled at by the main characters or something like that. I'm just, I'm not ready for, <laughs> it feels like it's a little bit of low hanging fruit and I'm just not prepared for it at this point. So um, I'm strapping in for what is going to be a year or two of just a ton of COVID content. And it's, yeah. it, kind of, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. <laughs> and we've got uh, the John David Washington and Zendaya movie coming out in a couple of weeks, which is like the first one to be filmed during the pandemic. Um, so we're, we're definitely like hitting that stretch of production. Um, it started off with the eighth episode of Tiger King. And now we're <laughs> locked down. <laughs> Where else will it go? I forgot there? about that. <laughs> they just got everyone on Zoom. That was so. It was like Joel McHale who was the lead of yeah. that. That's so weird. <laughs> um, yeah, we are. It's. I don't even. Is Malcolm and Marie like even about the pandemic, or is that just they happen to shoot it during they, the pandemic? So, it isn't about the pandemic, but it was written, like financed and filmed during the pandemic. Yeah, um, that's what. I, that's what I thought. Which as well. Um, I, I think I think like this will be a higher note in terms of pandemic movies because yeah, it'll it's definitely gonna feel like you can tell when you see content that's been filmed during the pandemic because it's always like well there's always one actor on screen and they're talking to people off camera so I feel like we'll probably get a lot of that in this. Um, but as far as like trying to be fixated on COVID or on this specific moment in time, um, I from what I've seen. It doesn't sound like it's going to be like that, which is why I'm excited for it. 
Yeah, I'm not looking forward to the like lockdown is one of these where they're overtly about doing things during the pandemic. Um, I mean, obviously, like art artists should be able to explore this, but it feels like a lot of movies are just kind of getting thrown together, not to necessarily as a cash grab or anything like that, but kind of just to maybe just uh, work in the current moment. But um, yeah, there's a lot of Zoom calls in this movie. It's like it's Zoom overload where people it feels like maybe half of this movie is Zoom calls. And there's like certain there's a few fun cameos. Ben Stiller makes a cameo in one. Um, and there's a few others, too, like a Stephen Merchant as well. But um, there's going to be so many of these where it's like we don't really have much of a script. So can we get my fun friend to go on a Zoom call for a minute? And then <laughs> that'll be the third act of this movie or something like that. Um yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> I don't really. It, it's kind of it kind of scares me a little bit to think about a lot of these kind of movies because they're just they're just not going to be good. I I'm worried about so many movies that just get thrown into production like this. It just it doesn't seem like a, a winning formula, if you ask me. Yeah, I uh, kind of segueing us into our our next segment at the same time. I watched Room for the first time earlier this week, and that weirdly has like a large section of the movie once they're out of the room where they're like dealing with viruses in the air and Jacob Tremblay's characters walking around with a mask. And I was like, wow, this is really proactive for 2015. <laughs> I saw the future. <laughs> that's the, that's the movie that I appreciate more where it's like even Palm Springs, which very much acted as like as a corollary for the pandemic where every day is the same and all that, but it's, it's obviously not about the pandemic at all, but it certainly works in that function. You can identify it with it in that way. I think movies like that will work a lot better with me. I think we're going to have to wait a few years before someone can cohesively create a fun drama or I guess a fun drama doesn't really make sense, but like some kind of rom-com or heist movie or something more with, with a genre bent that, actually makes sense and is cohesive um so i don't know i guess just one last thing uh, i wanted to mention doug lyman who continues to <laughs> confuse me as a as a director so we've been waiting for chaos walking for what feels like five years now it keeps getting pushed back it's coming out in march now uh, we'll see if that actually happens but um supposedly it's coming out but so he directed this movie um and it seems like for for all intents and purposes, this kind of this production uh, went through without a hitch. So they wrote it really quickly and they shot it in 18 days, uh, which I mean, the movie isn't particularly great. So that's one thing against it. But as a feat of production, it's very, very impressive. And it kind of goes against everything you hear about Doug Lyman as a director, <laughs> where like like Chaos Walking has been in production hell for years uh, um, edge of tomorrow was another like famously bad production um that he was the leader on uh, he's had so many different um issues throughout the years with getting movies made um which is really funny and i i found a few that i thought were really hilarious but um there was one day where he was he directed the the first uh, firstborn movie born identity and they were already he made the crew stay late because he wanted to play paintball in a forest and he needed someone to light it. So that's one um, for Mr. And Mrs. Smith. He uh, used his own money to build a set inside his mother's garage and then he destroyed it with a hand grenade. Um, so I don't know what he's doing there. And the, there's another story about the edge of about edge of tomorrow where on the second day of filming, he reshot everything that he did on the first day. Um <laughs> And there's just all these other stories about him, like bringing in writers, like to rewrite, like two acts of his movies over and over again. There's another, there's another one where, um, I think it was for Mr. and Mrs. Smith as well, where he brought a writer in and he said to write about 50 different endings. Um, and he ended up going with the first one. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just like all these different things. I can't, he, Doug Lyman continued to continues to elude me as a guy because it seems like he can get stuff done, but then he works just very, very oddly. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, he's made a lot of great movies, so maybe there's a method to all his madness, but um, it's just very, very strange to me. I don't really understand it. Um, yeah, I'm still not convinced Chaos Walking is going to happen. It's going to be like um, 
the new mutants and just forever be pushed back. <laughs> I'm waiting for that as well. I think that should be I feel like we've marked ten different movies as as the new new mutants. But I feel like it would be kind of be hilarious if it was chaos walking. Just every, <laughs> everything we know about Doug Lyman, it would just make the most sense. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's such a, it's going to be such a strange thing when that movie comes out too. Because by this point, like both Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley are fairly young, so they're going to be like noticeably younger than we recognize them as. So that's also going to be like a weird thing going into it. Because it is so old, especially with you know Tom Holland coming out as like adult Nathan Drake in Uncharted later this year, this will be such a weird like shift watching one movie and then the other. Yeah, and then he's in that that Cherry movie that the Russo brothers directed, which is coming out on Apple TV Plus, and he it's about him as, um, just like he's addicted to opioids <laughs> in that movie and it's like a such a stark contrast from like this boyish like charm that it seems like he has in a lot of like chaos walking and his other previous movies so um yeah i it's who knows <laughs> it's doug live i guess keeps doing his things i read the, i read somewhere else where um a lot of his friends tell him where it's like you're kind of two bombs away from not being able to work again because of all the problems with some of your movies. And he's like, yeah, I kind of, I know, but I'm just going to keep going <laughs> with what I do. So who knows? Maybe I don't think... he's trying to get blacklisted and it's just like not working. <laughs> well, the next movie he's doing is the, the fucking SpaceX movie with Tom Cruise. <laughs> so he keep, even when he thinks, even when it seems like he's about to lose, he keeps winning. <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> it's uh... amazing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is a uh, mixed hot takes on Doug Lyman. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Lyman, come on the pod. I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been a pretty eventful week um, with uh, um, the MCU and and WandaVision and One Night in Miami and and now uh, the long awaited lockdown. Um, so. <laughs> That's uh, that's been this week, um, and we'll be back next week talking about more movie stuff going on. Um, getting closer to a lot of the bigger releases that have been pushed back uh, from last year, assuming they're still coming out. Uh, so we'll be talking about those here in the near future as well. Um, and always remember, you can check us out online at moviebabble.com. Mm-hmm.